Hi, and welcome to Talking With Cancer. I'm Katie. And I'm Claire. Thanks for joining us today. So grab a coffee or a tea. In your favourite mug. Let's get settled down and begin this week's conversation. So good morning, Miss Katie Phillips. (laughs) What was that? What was the chink? What was that? What was that? sounded like a butler service. Oh, no, no. Good morning. Someone's coming to make my tea. No, I just dropped a belt. I just dropped a belt I was wearing yesterday and the buckle clanked. It's a little like, sort of like, ting, ting. How have you been? How are you, my friend? I know. It feels like ages since we've spoken because I had a holiday. You had a holobobs, yeah. And a Holly Bobs, yeah, which was really lovely. We, we went away and, oh, my God, it was just it was just great. It was kind of weird. It was like, oh, we're on holiday. We're back in a place that we know and I've got cancer this time. And, like, mm. we were there, was it the year before? Maybe the year before that. We're very familiar with this place. And it was definitely a strange thing of kind of sort of forgetting for a little while, which was, you know, amazing, but weird. And then overall, I felt really well. Yeah. I was, I got a bit dizzy and I think because of the heat. Yeah. So I just had to be a bit careful about that. But, you know, that's fine. I think the main thing that struck me about having a holiday is the travel. And we had a really, really tough time coming back. We went to Greece and we flew back. We had a couple of days in Athens and it was a beautiful city, but kind of hectic being in a city. I had booked a flight in the evening and it meant we got back like home after midnight. And then first thing the next morning, we went to see Papa. And also I was developing a cold. Right. So all those things were just horrible. Yeah. And Papa was was great. He was like, look, Katie, you know, everything is going as it should with the treatment. And I'm now going to take a back seat. So really, I'm handing you over to Kate Newbold. Oh, and really? Her team. Okay. And how does that feel? Because I know we, we've really loved Prof Popper. We've loved Prof Popper. I mean, we love we love Kate Newbold. We love as Kate well. too. We love Kate too. But he's he's you know he he's been kind of he's been in, in the front foot, hasn't he? Yeah. And now he said to me, "I'll be in the wings." You know, I'm going to be around if you need me. But basically, Newbold and her team are going forward with you. And we kind of had a little hug. Oh, that's so lovely. That was really nice. And then Dinch said something like, we still don't really know what you look like because you're always wearing your mask. And he pulled his mask down and he goes, this is me. (laughs) (laughs) So... That was a really That's a really question hard. though. Is that do you have to wear masks because of COVID when you're in when you go in there or just is it just him that's wearing it? So they've just changed the rules, but it's a really So have you been wearing a mask big all, factor all the time when you've been having your consultations and stuff and they've been too. Oof. Yeah. It hugely takes away the person. Yeah, you cuz you can't see well we know this from COVID but yeah. You can't see a smile. You can't see anything, you know. You can't see the person. And that's why when I've done some video consultations, I sort of thought, oh, this feels so different. I realise because I'm seeing their whole face and suddenly I see them. And that is really is a massive difference. So I would say for anyone who's had to go through any kind of treatment or appointments 
you know, with where their doctors and the, you know their experts are wearing masks, it's such a different feeling. Yeah, you don't get the you can't transmit the compassion and empathy just through your just through your eyes alone, can you? You just can't do it. And also because you can't touch either. There's another way that like reassurance is lost if you can't reach out and yeah, wow, that's tough. Yeah, and you know, it just it just feels that bit more clinical. So yeah. definitely. So now the rules are, and I had this experience yesterday when I went to see my surgeon for the second time, no mask. And I said to him, oh, my God, you don't wear, you're not wearing a mask. That feels really different. Mm. So Papa, you know, that was a little bit of a farewell. And then the next day, for the first time, I went to meet my surgeon. And I had, was quite impressed with my surgeon, not least because of his incredible CV. Because this is new news, I feel like. I feel you might have mentioned this last time that you might be going for surgery, but, but is this the, surgeon that will, this is the surgeon that will do your surgery? So, Kate, I feel like what's always been kind of going on in the background is, you know, there will be surgery, we've just got to time that Wait, right. yeah, yeah. And Kate Newbold had actually mentioned Prof Kim to me. So I'd gone away. I looked him up. I was like, wowed by his CV. Mm -hmm. And he emailed me while I was on holiday. He himself emailed me to say, I know you're away, which again, tick. Mm -hmm. I love that the communications got back to him. You know, let's get you in so we can meet and I can talk about the potential surgery. Okay. And what, you know, what that would involve. So after, the next day after Pop Out, went to see him. By the way, this cold is starting to build and it was really, really stressful because I had a cold, I caught it off dinch, I mm. did a COVID test, it wasn't COVID, but I had a cough. Oh, that must have been really frightening again to be having that. Forget, yeah. And is it the cancer or is it not? And yeah. It was really, really scary. Like, honestly horrific and it was bringing up loads of triggering for dinch and I. Like, dinch as well couldn't really handle it and he was like, how does the cough feel different to the cough you had before? And, oh, Claire, honestly, it was a really awful week. And I also felt like I really needed to, like, just lay low. And, and actually, that's what Pop-Up said. He said, Katie, I, I'm telling you this is nothing more than a cold. And he said to me, you just need, like, rest, liquid and TLC. I knew Dinch had no idea what TLC was. Tender love and Claire. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I've always tried that. You said I've that always... before. <laughs> I've always tried that with partners and boyfriends and they're like, just absolutely get away from me. But anyway, tender oh, love sweet. and Claire. <laughs> yeah. Dinch just went, oh. And it's like, what is that? But what Pop-Up thought he was saying was, what? I've got to do TLC. <laughs> yeah. And then Pop-Up said, oh, it sounds like my marriage. <laughs> Ditch is great at TLC. Ditch is very loving. <laughs> no, he was. Anyway, basically, I had a terrifying meeting with Prof Kim. And I don't, don't mind saying it because I told him so the next time I saw him. He just launched into what's involved in surgery. And, you know, the whole... The point of surgery is take the thyroid out, take out as much of the lymph nodes as possible because mm. what they want to do is treat me with radioactive iodine and they want that to, obviously, they want that to be effective. Oh, good morning, naughty boy. You're so angry with Huxley, it's hysterical. <laughs> I can't it's even. Like, you know, you, when you were like, you know, you've had an argument and, with someone and you just need to let off steam. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just doing silent. He can just bark all I want. He only wants the cat. <laughs> Council can come and take him away. 
if any of you listeners want a really gorgeous, <laughs> lovely, what is he, a poodle? It's a toy poodle. Toy poodle full of energy, full of, full energy. of life. Early riser. Um, yeah, any um, early risers out there. He needs to live on a farm. Yeah, he does, he does. Or he needs to live with old age pensioners that get up at five. But anyway, <laughs> what was I going to say? So, yeah, so... When you say he just launched, there was no like bedside, there was no like gentle preamble or anything. Sorry, I'm still just can't, we can't about do this. Old age pensioners to get up at five. <laughs> Claire, what are you talking? Those are the only people I think so in the world I think should have dogs. Just they're naturally attuned to them. They should. There should just be shifts. So yeah, old people in the morning, and then like a different age group mid morning. You know, just. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. so we digress. So yeah. basically, it was it was terrifying because he needs to... Okay, so imagine drawing a line from one ear down to your collarbone, across your neck, and up to your other ear. So it's like, as they describe it, it's like a smiley face. Oh, lovely. Lovely, isn't it? <laughs> so he's going to do that, and he's going to take out as much of the lymph nodes, and, the, and he will take out the thyroid. But what he also wanted to do with a colleague from the Royal Brompton... It was open up my chest and basically take out some of the lymph nodes that are around my, my chest area. And that would involve like breaking bones, God, tying them up with titanium. I mean, he didn't tell me that bit, bit about the tying up with titanium, but the clinical nurse told me afterwards. And I can't tell you, like, nothing felt... I, it was, I mean, apart from the fact, obviously, it was petrifying. Yeah. Something felt really, really wrong for me. Mm-hmm. I, I can I, I then went away and I did my due diligence and mm. I asked lots of people, have you had much surgery? What are your surgeons like? You know, and everyone's like, oh, surgeons are a different kind of person because they're dealing with cutting open the body. Yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. deal so much with the people. And also I've had these oncologists who are very mindful about how they're treating me. You know, it's a very kind of, this is what we're going to do, and then we're going to wait and see, whereas he's, like, instant, right? Yeah, he's going to get boom. in there. I'm going to do this, this and this, like a military operation or something. It's completely, yeah. And there are loads of unknowns, of course, there are with me, because, first of all, he does not know how the entrectinib is actually kind of how it how my blood is responding to the entrectinib. So how am I going to bleed because mm. of the drugs? And, you know, also, I guess the issue is, like, how long have these lymph nodes been there? Like, how easy are they to... I don't know, Claire. It's all actually stuff in a way I kind of don't want to know. So I came away from that meeting basically shell-shocked. I'm not surprised. really overwhelmed. And about a week later, I had a call with Dr Newbold. And I, I was really straight with her. And I just said, look, I just felt really, really overwhelmed. You know, the other thing that no one can tell me is the kind of the perfect window of time to do this because, okay, they know the entrectinib's working and it's working really well, but it might have stopped working. Like, we don't, we really, there's lots Mm. of unknowns. So that was a very, very scary experience. And then the next thing I know, he's calling me back in to have another appointment and to basically put a camera up my nose and look at my vocal cords. And I actually said to the nurse, can you sedate me for that? Because I've had that before. I just felt like I can't have any yeah, more procedures. Yeah, 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 and she yeah. said, no, Katie, honestly, you don't, you don't get sedated for that. Yeah. It's a really short, quick procedure. So 
I actually went yesterday to see him again. Yeah. Did you get the thing done? I got the thing done. Yeah. I went how to was see it? him and he wasn't wearing a mask this time. And I had to... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I think he... No, he can't have had He can't have had I've Huxley. got headphones on. He's, like, looking out the window. He's such a funny guard dog, Mon- Monty. Just talking about explaining your operation, because we, we sort of broke a cardinal rule of this podcast and actually met each other in person this week. And hearing you describe what your operation and what the surgery that you were going to have is... And I know I've been, I've been with you, but, you know, you've told me so much about your treatment and stuff, but hearing you talk about having an operation and the fact that it was going to be breaking open your chest, you know, where the incision marks are going to be... Totally different animal hearing you talk about surgery than talking about even cancer or the targeted therapy or the side effects. It, because it's, I guess, I don't know, maybe because it's invasive, maybe because the recovery time, maybe because, I don't know, the length of the operation or, or the, the fact that it's, it's, yeah. Do you know what it is, Claire? Because, like, my best friend nailed it. She said... Now someone is actually getting their hands on the cancer. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. There's no yeah. barrier to it now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's taking a pill, going for a scan, you know, the oncologists, yeah, as amazing, you know, and as, as mindful and smart as they are, it's a very different approach yeah. to... I am going to... Have it taken, yeah. It's sort of invisible. It's not. It's invisible in a way because you can't see it previously. You know you're taking treatment or you can see blood tests, but there's something about this that's like it's in there and it's being taken out. It's actually quite intimate. Yeah, yeah. It's quite intimate, you know. Yeah. And Claire, it, honestly, it took me a good week to process that. So sorry, I'm not trying to be flippant about it. I realise I am being a bit flippant because I really spent a week... Yep dealing with the reality of what that would mean but also along with that not feeling right about something I can't explain that bit I I didn't know what it was I thought it was fear Mm -hmm. I thought I think I'm just really scared and so it doesn't feel right but there was something in me that felt it was it was too much Mm -hmm. and I went to see him yesterday and he I think he knew because I had mentioned it to Kate Newbold and I'd mentioned it to my clinical nurse. I said to both of them, I came away feeling really overwhelmed by that. And I think he knew when I went in yesterday that like his approach maybe, you know, needs to be a bit different. And I actually, so I went in, he wasn't wearing a mask. I said, oh God, it's so nice to see you without a mask on. And I said, listen, I'm going to be really straight with you. I felt really overwhelmed last time after we met. And I didn't, I didn't actually come away feeling reassured. And he said, Katie, I did that on purpose. I was like, what? Really? What? He said, this is really serious. And you need to know that this is really serious. And I said, I do know that. And I mm. do know that. And I think the thing is with surgeons is, you know, they have to... They could be liable for all sorts of things. Like mm. there's a lot of risk in what they do. And I think by the very nature of that, they don't ever want their patients to say, well, you never told me it was going to yeah. be like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that he said was, he said, did you know we had an international call about you last week? I said, tell me more. <laughs> he said, we were on a call with Harvard. We were on a call with, there's a hospital in New York, Mount Sinai, I think it is. Mm-hmm. 
and we were all talking about you and your treatment and your case. And in that conversation, questions arose about the chest dissection. Mm -hmm. And we actually all agreed that we're not going to perform that part of the surgery. Wow. And we're just going to do the neck. Mm -hmm. and, but how do you must feel so much better about that? So yeah. much better. And again, you know, I was listening to a Mark Nepo interview with Oprah. Mm. And one of the things he said when he was going through his cancer experience was he felt something with the tumours. He, he felt that they were fluctuating and no one believed him. But he knew that they were. He just had this feeling. And he said, you know, if you've got a feeling in your gut, trust it. Mm -mm. And it stayed with me because that was after my first meeting with Prof Kim. And I thought, what is the feeling? And then I thought, no, it's just fear. But, you know, now I honestly think I just felt it was too much. I think the thing is, it's at some stage, something's needed because it's not like they're going, oh, the cancer there doesn't matter. Yeah. Of course, it, it you know, it's there. But... I think they feel quite positive. They feel quite optimistic about once they've done, he's done the neck dissection and he's yeah. taken out a lot of the lymph nodes there. And he thinks he might be able to get to one that's in the throat area that means he doesn't need to open up the chest as mm. well. But then they will treat me with radioactive iodine. Okay. And that may be really impactful. So basically, so I have the surgery and now I have a date for it so mm -hmm. it's in a couple of weeks so there's a little okay. bit of prep for the surgery I've got to meet with the anaesthetist I've got to have my bloods I've got to come off the ontrectinib that's another scary thing okay Oof. yeah so I'm not certain how far I think about seven days before the surgery I have to stop taking it and that is scary as well because I've become so dependent on taking this chemotherapy basically but I also feel like the aggressive nature of the cancer happened at a later stage. And if I'm now back to a place I was, you know, pre-diagnosis and pre-pre that, then it's not going to kind of be as rapid. Yeah. That's what I hope. Anyway, I come off the ontrectinib. I go for surgery seven days later. I'm probably going to be in the hospital recovering for five to seven days. Again, that's a lot less than if they'd done the chest, which would have been two weeks. I think I've got to be kind of fully back up on my feet at home and, you know, sort of back to normal. And then I go to Sutton, the Royal Marsden in Sutton, where I go to the, um, I think it's called the Iodine Suite, Ooh. which sounds very um, fancy. It, I said, oh, Kate, what, what's the Iodine Suite? She said, it's a room with a bathroom and a window. So I was like, okay, lovely. So it's not I some like fancy pad in Vegas where like, yeah, no, yeah, Katie's taking the Iodine Suite. Yeah, just send the dancing <laughs> girls, dancing girls up. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so the Iodine Suite. Yeah. yeah, so basically I'm there for three days and I just, I think it's just a pill. Really? I, th I think I just take okay. a pill and then they basically, you know, I have to stay away from people because it's radioactive, yeah. right? Yeah. I think there's like this kind of dial, this like clock, and it kind of, met, it like the dial goes up the closer you get to it when you're on this radioactive iodine. How mad is that? Oh, wow. But while I'm there, they will scan me to see, has the iodine gone to the cancer? And if the iodine shows that it's gone to the cancer, that's a good indication that it will work. Mm -hmm. So they won't see it working straight away. I mean, it's a matter of months. Yeah, but they'll that know that, that it knows where to go to work. Yes, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And yeah. 
the question mark is over when do I go back on the ontrectinib? Because as Kate Newbold said, it's a lot of toxicity in your body to have mm. the ontrectinib and the iodine. So I'm waiting for the their answers on that mm -hmm. and what, 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 what Harvard will have so, to say about it and what yeah. sign I have to say about it. But that's kind of incredible as well that like around the world I've These being amazing brains, about. yeah. Wow. And that's the other thing, like this operation, I think, for the Royal Marsden will be historical. You know, it will go down in history mm. because Not my that, case yeah. is so unusual. Know, so I still find it so bizarre to say Beautifully that. unique. Beautifully unusual. Beautifully unusual, sorry. I keep getting that wrong. No, it's because... A dinch, yeah. yeah. Unique but not special. Unique but not special. Beautifully um, unusual. So I think that's, that's where we're up to, Claire. Do you know what I said to Kip, Prof Kim? I said, let's just put it down to being a bad first date. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't really respond to that. No, 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 that's too much for a No, exactly. Yes, dear, OK. His intent was to shock you, to find a way for it to register with you. That what you were going through but and it bloody well did and I suppose yeah. also to realize you know I came away yesterday and I realized like this is a massive thing on his shoulders yeah to do that to, to be the person doing that to be the person responsible for that yeah massive huge. yeah 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 and also the other good thing was that he did the camera up the nose really nicely <laughs> you know and it was really quick and easy <laughs> And I think all my anxiety about that was really about seeing him again. And yeah. So, yeah, I have to say, I'm feeling much better about, about that, Claire. Good, I'm glad. Really, it sounds yeah. like a real... It's bandied around this world, but such a roller coaster, and such a huge thing to get your head around that that's going to be happening to you, yeah. And also, do you know what was really tough about it was coming back from this lovely holiday and just a big fucking bang down to earth. Yeah. And suddenly this holiday was forgotten. Yeah, smashed around the face. You lost that little yeah after holiday afterglow evaporated pretty quick. Yeah. yeah, so that sucked. But do you know what I did do? Which like when I got back and in between when we've chatted and mm. I can't remember what time is. I spoke to Kate Newbold for the podcast, and we're going to be listening to that right now. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast, talking with cancer. You're a very, very exciting guest. I've talked about you a lot in Series 1. You're quite prominent in Series 1, all in a really good way, obviously, because you're a brilliant oncologist. And today, yeah, I just wanted to, to get a bit more insight from you and, and talk a bit more about your journey and what you see on the other side, because obviously I talk a lot as a patient. So to introduce you, Kate Newbold of the Royal Marsden, you are a consultant clinical oncologist specialising in head, neck and thyroid. So I guess to start off with, it would just be great to hear a little bit of your background and how you got to the Royal Marsden. Yeah, so I trained in uh, University of Bristol and I think when I first qualified, I thought I wanted to do A&E. So I've, I've gone a very different route to how I initially thought when I qualified uh, for medical school. But I first experienced oncology as a junior doctor I really enjoyed it then. I think it's always, you know, a very linked to the consultants that you work for at the time and the teams that you work for and, and the environment you're in. But I really enjoyed oncology. And so once I'd done my general medical training, which you do first of all, I applied to do specialist oncology training. And it was then part of the Southwest Thames rotation that I ended up on, which is was Guildford 
the Royal Marsden and Guy's and St Thomas's where I did my registrar training, all those three sites. And so I had a really broad experience of managing patients with solid tumours, which is what we as clinical oncologists do. And in the UK, clinical oncology training means that you can um, administer radiotherapy as well as systemic drug therapies like chemo as well. And also from the thyroid cancer point of view, we can also prescribe radioisotope treatments such as radioactive iodine. So that was how I ended up in clinical oncology and then sub-specialising into head and neck cancers and thyroid cancers was again, you know, I really enjoyed my attachment on the units treating those particular cancers. I then did my research into new ways of imaging um, head and neck cancers and applying that to radiotherapy. So using what we call functional imaging, where you get a bit more information about the biology of the cancer, not just where it is and how big it is on a scan, but also how it's functioning, you know, how rapidly it's growing, how much oxygen it's using, you know, all these additional, very exciting ways of scanning patients and finding out a bit more about the biology of their particular cancers. So I did my research in that at the Royal Marsden and came away with my MD research degree for that. And then I really enjoyed working at the Marsden. I really enjoyed working on the head, neck and thyroid units. The reason I particularly liked it at the Marsden was because it is a dedicated cancer hospital. So I felt that I could offer my patients a sort of full port network when they arrive at the Marsden with our specialist nurses, speech and language therapists, dietitians, all of whom are so important, especially with uh, cancers that are rising in in the head and neck region. And so I applied for a consultant job and got it which was just, you know, was a a nice surprise and really I was delighted with that. And so I've now been a consultant on the head and neck and thyroid unit for almost 16 years, which makes me feel very old. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So is that a a long-winded way of describing my background or how I got to this? Perfect. That's perfect. So I guess in that time, that you've been there, what I'm interested to understand and what I'm understanding with my own journey is how much treatment has changed. So, I mean, again, there's probably a lot to to pack in 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 what you've seen in those 16 years. But again, if you can, to summarise, how has that treatment changed? What are the the kind of the biggest changes that you've seen or progressions in in treatment and research? Well, I think in cancer in general, so in oncology in general, uh, there has been a huge shift away from treating a particular cancer, i.e. thyroid cancer or head and neck cancer, to treating my patient's particular cancer. So a big move towards individualising the treatment to the particular cancer that my patient has. And that sounds obvious but what it means is that instead of treating a stage two thyroid cancer with x y and z or you know a stage four head and neck cancer with chemotherapy followed by radiotherapy we are very much individualizing those particular treatments to the the patient so for example with head and neck radiotherapy we're directing x-rays into a very complex anatomical part of the body there's lots of critical structures 
which you want to avoid with your radiation whilst you're trying to target your tumour. And we've seen a big development in the technical side of radiotherapy delivery using intensity modulated radiotherapy, using stereotactic radiotherapy, using MRI fused with our radiotherapy machines. So we now have a MR Linux, that, that's an MRI that's incorporated into the linear accelerator that delivers the radiation so that we can get the best imaging um, whilst we're treating patients. And therefore the aim of that is obviously to get better dose to the target, but also to minimize damage to the surrounding normal tissues. So from a technical point of view, radiotherapy has really developed in that time that I've been from a registrar training to now. And also with the systemic therapies, and that's an umbrella term for drug therapies basically, or isotope therapy. So where you're giving an intervention into circulation basically, so you're treating all over the body. We have really moved towards our drug therapies, particularly to the biology of the tumor. And so, you know, this is where we are profiling our patients' tumors in terms of what alterations in the tumor DNA, the tumor molecular makeup, which might provide us with a very targeted and effective therapy. So we're, we're looking at the tumor, we're looking at patients, fusions, alterations in the DNA, and the pharma industry alongside that are developing drugs to target those abnormal pathways that are activated by these alterations in the tumor DNA. So it's a really exciting time to be an oncologist because things are really changing. And, and that's another reason why oncology is such a great specialty to be in, because not only do you have the, the, the standard care that is incredibly rewarding, but you're also often involved in trials of new therapies coming through. And so you feel that things are changing and you can really deliver that to your patients as well. So it's a nice combination of both clinical medicine but also, you know, some of the research and clinical trial side of things as well. I'm nodding a lot because yeah. what you're describing well, is very familiar and is, is basically where I'm at with my treatment and how you approached the cancer and the diagnosis. I think I was diagnosed before I came to you, but definitely in understanding the gene mutation, that was something that the, the Royal Marsden, that was your definitely your department. So I was going to ask how... When a rare case like mine comes along, how the kind of the route to treatment changes. And I know early on there was a lot of kind of multidisciplinary team discussions. And do you really kind of use that resource of your colleagues to, to really kind of share your thoughts and opinions on how yeah. to deal with a rare case like mine? Definitely. I mean, you know, that is the, the brilliant thing about the world that we are living in now, which is so connected. And, you know, so what I really value and utilize a lot is the, I'm treating rare cancers. And so the worldwide community of experts for those particular cancers is small enough that you know, you have the, you know, the telephone number or the email 
for colleagues in the States, Europe, you know, Australasia, that you can contact. And we do that so much more now. So, you know, I will contact my colleagues around the world. Have you had experience with a case with, you know, this particular makeup? You know, what did you find useful? What did you notice about it? You know, as well as obviously the standard ways of keeping up to date with advances and literature searches to see, you know, what therapies have been applied in certain cases. But it is definitely using that international network of colleagues and friends. And it's so much healthier to be doing that. And not only for the clinicians, but hopefully for our patients, because if we're pooling our expertise and experience, then you know, you just hopefully make sure that you're doing your best for your patient in terms of searching out, you know, the best particular options and just learning from experience of, of other colleagues. And when you have rare tumours and you, you know, you have a limited number of patients or a limited experience with those, then pooling as much knowledge as possible can only be useful and helpful. Yeah, I mean... I remember you said to me a few times, you know, you've got us all scratching our heads here, Katie. And I was always told when you were discussing me in a multidisciplinary team meeting, and I think it was this feeling of like, okay, well, at least with my case, they're kind of interested in it. It's not just your bog standard. And I tried to draw as much positivity from that. One thing that I was really struck by when I came to see you for the first time was how mindful of language you were and how different my experience was with you because of the language that you used. Is that something you're aware of? Is that just something that comes very naturally to you? Is it something that you're trained? How does that come about? Well, it's nice to hear that that was your experience because, yes, I'm very conscious of it. Now, we do get trained, you know, as as you come through your medical training at various points about, you know, communication skills and things but I think when you're delivering news about cancers and also about treatments that can that are extremely daunting and frightening for patients then I think we are very aware of trying to think about the impact of what we're saying we don't always get it right. And so it's always something to be aware of and to be learning. And one of the most rewarding things I find in my job is if I feel that I have communicated it and made the acceptance of A, the diagnosis, B, the treatment, and C, potentially the prognosis. If I can help a patient and their families manage that and cope with it a little bit better then that is incredibly rewarding conversely if you misjudge that and it's always about you know it's like when you meet a person you try you meet a new person you're sort of trying to assess what they are how they will receive something you're about to say and so sometimes you don't always get it right and then that that's disappointing and you have to really try to learn from it and move forward but we're always told that your patient when you're telling them bad news for example they'll only ever remember the first line that you say and then so one of the things that we do we're we are taught to do and we try to do is to be very clear and not to use euphemisms or skirt around the facts and to try to be very factual and direct sensitively 
uh, with the messages that you're given. But it is something that I do think about a lot. And actually, I've had experience over the last couple of years of being on the other side and of being a relative with a family member. And that has been very eye-opening to me because I have seen how another doctor's message, which I think is very clear, has been interpreted by the patient, my relative, very differently. And that really was a wake-up call to me to re reminding me about you know, thinking very carefully about what I say to patients. And it was very interesting seeing how my relative received, you know, that information, how they processed it or didn't. And so that has made me think again about, you know, how I talk to my patients. So I think that, you know, that was quite an interesting experience. So it's something that we're learning, learning all the time. Mm. And, you know, you do have to judge it with the individual in front of you and then we have fantastic backup with our clinical nurse specialists who often you know then spend more time after we've spoken to our patients and then they have a slightly different approach and that can back up what you've said or perhaps um you know explain further um and so they have a a, a very important role in the whole relationship between me and my patient as well so it's a kind of team effort but it's an interesting question no use. it's I, I'm fascinated it's, it's it's something that again Claire and I talk about a lot on the podcast is language and you know one of the things I mentioned as well is that prior to this experience I was going through IVF and the language that's used in IVF again there's a lot of language around failure and abnormality and I think it deserves its own podcast to be honest but I think you know I definitely noticed a huge difference and it was incredibly impactful and continues to be with you and also with Prof Papat, Prof Papat at the Marsden. Just so, you know, I, I remember that first conversation, that first appointment really, really well. I remember the different possible outcomes. You know, I hadn't been put on treatment yet. We were still trying to investigate lots of things. But I was always determined early on to kind of go at this with a positive mindset and to kind of encourage that with my team, you know, so with one route, you could have saying, you know, and that's often very effective. And I said, and it will be with me. Like, you know, I said that to you in quite yeah, a kind yeah. of assertive way. So how, how often do you interact with patients who have a kind of positive, optimistic, I mean, that sounds bizarre, doesn't it, when you're talking about cancer and prognosis, but um, how often do you interact with those kind of patients? Do you find that they, if patients can find meaning in their experience or with, you know, yeah. draw a positive experience, it has an impact on the treatment I mean, or the outcome? I mean, I'm always amazed at how my patients deal with what their diagnosis is, how they get on the treatment. And I quite often think, gosh, how on earth would I be in this situation? And it's a humbling experience to be looking after patients with cancer and going through the treatments that they receive, because you are part of quite a sort of, you know, intimate time in their lives. You know, you see all the emotions coming out, all the relationships you know with families and things are you know unveiled basically and it's a privilege to be looking after patients and seeing how they deal with this and 
the positivity is you know remarkable in in many situations and yes i'm sure this contributes to how patients tolerate their treatments and it's difficult to tease out how much you know that that side of things impacts on outcome but there are lots of you know theories that that of course it does and i'm sure you know we've all seen anecdotally our patients who you know do very well when they're keeping the rest of their life going you know they're things that interest them, things that can distract them from what they're undergoing treatment. Like a podcast, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I would also always just temper that with, there is this sort of pressure, I think, sometimes for patients to be a brave, positive cancer battler, cancer survivor. And actually, you know, sometimes patients don't feel like that. You know, you'll feel really angry. Why is this happening to me? Upset sad frustrated a feeling of loss of your normal life you know why am i you know having to deal with this and i think sometimes there's quite a big pressure from society that you have to fight it you know you have to run your marathons which are you know do lots of fundraising which you know is absolutely incredible that patients that people do and you know it's amazing and, and brilliant however i think you know, not everyone feels like that. And the people that do feel like that will have times when they don't. And I think it has to be, I think you have to permit yourself as a patient to have down days or angry days or frustrated days as well, and mm. not feel like the big brave cancer warrior as well. So yeah. I think it's just, you know, making sure that patients are allowed to have their the feelings that they're feeling and then to try to deal with that and provide the support for experiences they're going through and again I'm very lucky because at the last time we have a very very good psychological medicine unit that can provide support and also our palliative care teams who are brilliant at, at support together with our clinical nurse specialists that are attached to each unit so you know that again is why I like working in a, a big cancer centre because I feel that I can offer my patients this additional support that you know, they may not you know, get enough from me alone, mm. obviously. So it's having that network of support and just yeah. allowing your patient to feel how they feel. Yeah, there's a holistic approach, I suppose, yeah. with the with the Marsden, isn't there? So again you know you're, you're right you see a lot of messages around cancer that sort of caught on one of them being the gift of cancer which I've talked about as well on the podcast which sounds very bizarre but I see that a lot so I suppose I mean really to summarize and this is this is a huge question I'm asking you to try and answer it in a matter of seconds but you may not be able to answer it but how does cancer change a person <laughs> this is my big question I don't oh, know. I mean, it bears a lot of thought, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's very variable. Obviously, you know, different people will be affected in different ways. I mean, quite apart from the physical and, you know, treatment, physical impact of the disease and the treatments, the, the psychology is, is very interesting. It's something I think we probably don't know enough about, but it is definitely a stop you in your life and reassess and it's not just cancer any illness that impacts on your you know normal life any injury and trauma or whatever 
will stop you and make you think, hang on a minute, I've been on this treadmill doing all these things and all of a sudden I can't do that or the outlook that I always imagined I have has changed and what's important to me. And, you know, to a similar degree, I suppose we've seen that through the COVID pandemic as well, when people are suddenly faced with fear of things changing and Mm. in many cases people being very unwell. So yes, we do see patients taking stock and you know reassessing the important mm. values in life and perhaps you know slowing down on other sides of things which maybe now all of a sudden don't seem as important as they did pre-diagnosis. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? Life changes. Life will never be the same again. Thank you so much for speaking to me today it's been a real privilege I mean I could talk to you for so much longer but you do have a very important job to get to so thank you I really appreciate it it's a pleasure thank you so that was my chat with Dr Kate Newbold which was was wonderful to get to speak to her. and I could have spoken to her for a lot lot longer I think she's super smart and engaged and really mindful as well about how she speaks and what she says but you've obviously heard me talk about yeah. her a lot and so have the listeners what what did it feel like hearing her voice first of all she was kind of how I imagined like proper you know she speaks very nicely, she's very clear, she's very succinct, every word is carefully chosen. You know, you had the sort of professional setup of her, her job title and stuff, and you and she explained her sort of professional history, professional and clinical history and, you know, where life's taken her. And then there was a shift in the register as she started getting more into her, um, more into treating you, more and in, further into her career, and then the real shift when she talked about how what's changed her attitude to her patients is having had a family member with cancer. And you just get so much more of her as a person coming through. For me, that was really, really fascinating that it's only when something is in very close quarters to you that it changes your... Even even though she's dealing with this professionally and with, you know, probably an absolutely impeccable bedside manner and and deep care it's only when you have a personal um, knowledge of this or it impacts you emotionally maybe do you begin to think about how you phrase certain things or what it what it actually feels like for the person opposite you because you're able to be more empathetic so for me that was really I found that really interesting yeah yeah I agree and I think because I had a chat with one of the clinical nurses quite a while ago and I said, is there a language course that, that yes. they go on? Is there a yeah. training? And I said, because I was really struck by that. And she said, it's really interesting to hear you say that because she said one patient's good experience of language could be another patient's completely different experience. And I think yeah. that was exactly the point she made about going with a relative. Like she heard one thing and the relative heard something else. Yeah. So I think it's really hard to get that right all of yeah. the time. It's very, you know, individual, isn't it? And there's also what you were just saying earlier about going into shock and overwhelm. And you can't take on board all of this information that you're being given at one moment because, yeah, you're, yeah, you're in shock, so you can't process it. And I think that's something that it's made me aware of, you know, all of the things that, that you've gone through. It takes, you can be told it and then it takes a while for you to process it and come to terms with it. And you definitely can't do that in just, you know, a 40 minute slot in a consultant's office. You can't go through that entire journey. 
So yeah, the, the language that people use. And I think the softness of the approach and the compassion of the approach is so, is so important, you know. You know what I wanted to talk to you about, just to kind of touch on, and maybe we, we can pick it up another yeah. time, is what's this kind of... I think it might be a bit controversial to say it, but, like, there's definitely a difference between going to these appointments on your own mm. and going with someone. And what's mm. that... What is that difference? And how do you feel about going to appointments with someone, whether that's your partner or your mother or your friend? or? And I think, like... It's, I've really thought about that a lot because mm. I feel that for Dinch, it's absolutely his right to come to every appointment with me if he wants to. Yeah. But I don't mind saying that him coming to appointments with me, there's always a different level of stress to that experience. Okay, interesting. And definitely for the most part, it's really helpful for me, particularly where you're digesting lots of information and I'm really lucky that he is brilliant at taking that stuff in. Yeah. But, you know, there's a context, there's wait, you know, there's leaving on time, there's sitting in traffic, there's finding a parking space. So yeah. There's all of that stress that goes on before. You know, there have been times where I've, we've gone separately because he might have been taking my stepdaughter to school or whatever, yeah. and then he's running late. That stresses me out. Mm. So this is, this is what I find really interesting to just to, to share, because I think... Is you find it easier going on your own? I actually do do a lot of the time so yeah. like I knew going to see Prof Kim you know most recently was much more straightforward in fact he opened the door and he sort of was looking for Dinch he kind of said oh where's are you on your own and I said yeah Dinch I gave him the day off but is it because you don't have to process it in tandem with someone else like this can just be your experience you don't have to worry about how someone else is reacting to the news alongside you at the same time. So you could just focus on yourself. Like, this is totally my experience. And when I've had, like, I don't know, a 40-minute bus ride home or jumped in the car for an hour or whatever, or got a coffee, thought about it, sat in the car park and cried, then I can go and talk to my partner about it. But you need some of this that is just yours Maybe alone. Maybe it is. You know, when I went to that first appointment, the first diagnosis appointment, and Dinch was away. He mm. was working away. And my best friend knew I had this appointment and she knew that it was, you know, something was going on. Mm. And straight after that appointment, she came and met me and we went for dinner and she was by my side. Mm. But she said to me recently, I always feel so guilty that I didn't just come to that appointment with you. And I said to her, I was meant to do that on my own. Yeah. I was meant to be on my own in that room with that oncologist. And the reason, that was with Mr. Paul Stimson. The reason I say that, I think you're exactly right. Like, it's amazing to have the support that you have. But in the cold light of day, you are on your own and no one else is living this. Yeah. Apart from you. And so I think there's just something about that being real. Yeah. And that being the way it is. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds... And, you know, loads of people offer to come to me with appointments. Yeah. Like, so many people. And I always say no. Yeah. Because I think, yeah, I've, this is, this is, it's quite personal. It's really it's personal. Private. I think you're right. It's really personal. It's really private. You deserve privacy to handle it however, however you want. And to choose to go by yourself. And also, as you just said, like, you will always take the full force of this news and nobody can spare you from and nobody can spare you from that that sounds terrible i didn't mean it like that but like i think having that space for you to digest this in your own way feels 
feels really important. And I think that that's something I want to talk about because I, I wonder how other people feel and I wonder whether it just feels like, I don't know if cliche is the right word, but, you know, it's sort of forced upon us that we feel we should take people. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes it might be easier not to. Yeah. And that's yeah. okay, I think. Yeah, I think you get to choose. And I think maybe the only times that I think it's handy to maybe have some, or I found it handy, is in situations of bad news and shock where... I've been, I know I've been in scenarios and my brain, the, the doctor started telling me something and my brain has cut out after three seconds because I just can't, I can't take this in. And so I've been really right. glad to have someone there with me who could keep relaying to me what had happened and what had been said so eventually I could, I could take it in. Because my record of what happened in that room is very different to actually what went, what went on. So I think sometimes with the overwhelm of information, it can be handy. But then I've also asked doctors if I could put a, a recorder down and record it so I can listen to it later. I think that's really smart and I've never done that. I think that's a brilliant yeah. idea. Yeah. I think that's a really good idea. You've got some funny voice And don't get on. me wrong, because... <laughs> what's that? You've got some you funny voice You send it with some really funny voice members. You know, where did that come from? <laughs> but I think it's good because then you can, you can also habituate yourself. You can listen again. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. really smart. But also, I do just want to say again, like, Dinch has been incredible at, you know, yeah. coming to those appointments and digesting the information. And often he'll be the one to share that, you know. Yeah. Like, after the surgery, the first meeting, after that meeting with the surgeon, he waited till the evening and then he put these really concise voice notes together. Because, again, I got to that space where I couldn't update people. Yeah, I just can't, couldn't. can't talk about it. And also... You know, Dinch has a different brain to yours, as you were saying. Like, he can crunch the numbers, he can do the stats. He's looking at it in a very, with a very different filter, in a very different sort of, I don't know, intellectual, not, not yours as an intellectual, but a very different sort of mathematical or statistician-y mm. kind of attitude, whereas you're not looking for the numbers in this. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's really smart at kind of taking that information. So, yeah, and I think, you know, that's what struck me again about Kate's chat, is that she went with a relative and, you know... Possibly she's the best person yes. to go to those appointments yeah. with, you know, amazing person to go with. But but yeah, I just thought that was interesting mm. as well in that chat that she was there and that she received the news differently. And of course, you know, well, she will do I with think, a specialist oncologist's, you know, knowledge and yeah. background. You'll hear it. Yeah. But yeah. I loved I loved speaking to her, Claire. I just, you know, it was a different, a different experience to obviously my appointments that I have with yeah. her. And I think she and to find really... out more about her as a person as well, because you know you don't, I guess, when you're yeah. being when you're a patient, it's that's not what she's it's about. been there for sixteen years, and you know, interesting. She thought she wanted to go into A and E, and because I was interested, why why head and neck? You know, how did she end up in that? And it just seems like that's just where she ended up yeah. in a way. She met good people when she started training, and that's it that shaped her career. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was awesome. Yeah, it's been. Re I'm loving kind of interviewing certain people mm. that I'm coming across. So, yeah. Well, anything coming up in the next week that we need to? You see, I, I'm doing prep now for. I need to have another scan. I need to get bloods and and like I said, I'm meeting the anaesthetist at some point. Yeah. And then yeah, then I'll go into surgery. And, but and we'll, be speak before, we'll, we'll speak before we'll you speak do before we'll, the we'll surgery, speak before the surgery and we'll, we'll speak we'll speak once I'm you know yeah <laughs> when I've just come round from the yeah, anaesthetic yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's be one of those really annoying reporters just give me five minutes just give me five minutes 
Yeah, we'll speak when you've come home from surgery. Yeah, but it's, it feels like ages since we've chatted, so that's lovely to, to speak to you. But it's only been a week for the listeners, Yes, exactly, it? but a little bit longer for us. Yeah. Right. I love you very it's much. good to see you. Love you, you too, darling. Babe. It's great to see you. I'll and speak to you soon, yeah? yeah? Mwah. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's Talking With Cancer. Feel free to share the show or give us a review on Apple's podcast, Spotify or Google. It could help other people find out about us and might help someone you don't know who's got questions about cancer. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Either via our Instagram, which is talking underscore with cancer, or you can email us hello at talkingwithcancer.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye.